The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, some of you have been asking about the status of my eye after the cataract surgery that I had about 10 days ago. Uh, I wish you could, I could say that it's all better, but I'm actually having some difficulty with the eye that had the surgery, and so I would appreciate your continued prayers. Um, I'm just not seeing very well out of this eye, and so it's made it kind of a challenge to do sermon prep and just get back into the regular swing of things. I've had a couple follow-up visits with a doctor expressing my concerns, and he's still trying to troubleshoot what's going on, but um, would appreciate your ongoing prayers uh, for the full recovery of the eye. Um, otherwise, the quality of the sermons is going to be reflective of that in the, in the weeks to come. Um, today marks the beginning of Advent, and Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And it refers to the coming of Jesus into our world uh, for that very first Christmas 2,000 years ago. And uh, even as we reflect on that first coming when he came as a child, born in a manger, um, it also actually ought to stir in us the idea of Jesus' second coming and the anticipation that uh, we are still awaiting for him to return. Um, You know, there's a lot in a more liturgical church that would be involved in Advent, and we don't tend to do, uh, we're not really a liturgical church, but what I would say is this, is... um, If you look in the Old Testament, in both the Jewish tradition there, as well as in the church tradition, what you find is that when holidays are celebrated, it's almost never just a a one-and-done kind of deal, where you uh, have one day where you celebrate and then you move on. Uh, You're almost always invited to kind of a season of observing that holiday. And uh, I think that's why, and, and probably the most important Ways we do that in the church calendar is in Lent uh, that prepares us for the Easter celebration, and then Advent, which prepares us for the Christmas celebration. And so you've, if you've been at ICC for all, you've, you've heard me kind of give this spiel over and over again, but I, I think it's actually really important as we see these two critical dates in our calendar of Christmas and Easter that rather than just thinking of Christmas as December 25th, um, to really spend the month of December uh, meditating on and reflecting on uh, what it means that God gave us His only Son as His gift to us to come into this world and become a person that He might die on our behalf. And so I I would really hope that this month would be spent um, reflecting on that in various ways Uh, as we get ourselves ready for that Christmas celebration, okay? And so, why don't we open up in a word of prayer, and then we will jump into the message for today. Father, we do pray for this month of December, and we know that in the midst of um, presents being purchased and holiday music and and, um, even all of the craziness of the shopping holiday, um, we can lose sight of what we're really observing what we are really celebrating. And so 
We pray that in quieter moments, in the stillness of our heart, in the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us the true meaning of Christmas, the message that you want to give us of your um, commitment and love toward us, demonstrated so powerfully by the giving to us of your only Son. And so we pray that even as we approach another Christmas celebration, that there will be real meaning in that celebration as we are filled with a, a sense of true joy and hope and peace because of the love that you've shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, so today I am going to unpack the theme of hope and then the week after, we will explore the topic of joy. And then in the third Advent message, Pastor Peter will speak on the subject of peace. And then in our Christmas uh, service itself, which I believe is on the 23rd this year, will be the focus of love. And so with these sort of very key anchoring themes of Christmas will be explored over this Advent series that we're going to do this year. Um, I've talked numerous times about my mission work that I did in Kenya as a medical doctor in a mission hospital. Uh, but I've shared a lot less about our last year in Kenya when I ended up teaching at a seminary called Scott Theological College. Um, as many of you know from hearing my story before, I ended up developing some breathing problems related to the altitude that we were living in in Kenya. And so after four years of medical mission work in the highlands of the Rift Valley in Kenya, uh, we relocated to a lower altitude in southern Kenya, where I began basically a whole new career as a teacher. And although I loved my work as a doctor, um, when I got into that academic setting, I felt like a kid in a candy store. Um, it was like all those testimonials that you hear of people saying, I can't believe that I get paid to do this work, you know? Except I didn't get paid. I had to raise support to do that work. So that phrase doesn't quite fit. But you understand the sentiment, right? I mean, I loved every minute of it. Uh, I was so excited about every class session that I got to teach that I could hardly wait until the next period would start. I felt like a racehorse, uh, at the starting gate, waiting for that bell to go off. Uh, is it the next class yet? You know, I just couldn't wait till I could teach again. Um, as a lecturer, as a new lecturer at that school, I was given three courses to teach. And I was given a syllabus for each class and just said, you know, just go through these notes when you're teaching these subjects. But I ended up revamping every course and writing entirely new class notes. And... Um, even as the semester progressed, I was reworking those notes, getting ready for the next time that I would teach those courses in the next semester. In addition to lecturing, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, mentor a handful of senior students who were getting ready to graduate and preparing them for their future ministries. And we would, take, we would have these long talks at my front porch where we would explore difficult biblical uh, theological issues and talk about spiritual leadership. And it was just so energizing to me to pour what little I had learned in my ministry experience into these young future leaders for the Kenyan church. And um, 
Eventually, I was given the opportunity to participate uh, on the Committee for Curriculum Development for the whole university. And I loved every minute of that, too. <laughs> I mean, I think most people looked really bored in those meetings, but I loved those meetings because it was talking at the highest level about uh, the future of the school and the direction that we wanted to go into, these decisions that would really position this school to be uh, just a key institution for the future of the African church. And so these, these meetings would just get my, my, my juices flowing and just get me so excited about the future of the school. Uh, but then about nine months into teaching at Scott College, um, my symptoms of difficulty breathing reemerged. Uh, we had dropped about 3,000 feet in altitude from the mission hospital, but that school in Kenya was still uh, higher than the altitude of Denver, Colorado. And so we were still too high for my breathing. And after seeing some doctors, it became pretty clear that we were going to have to actually leave Kenya and return to the U.S. for a medical leave to recover from my difficulties. And I have to say this, those final months trying to finish off that school year at Scott were so difficult to get through. And it was strange because it was the exact same work that I had previously been so excited about and felt so rewarded by. But here was the thing. Knowing that my days were numbered at that school, I struggled to be motivated to keep going. Why? Because I knew that there was no future for me at Scott. And I realized I wasn't going to be around for the future development of the school's curriculum. And so I thought, what's the point of me even revising my notes at this point for a class that I would never teach again? And all of these relationships that I had worked so hard to develop with both faculty and with these students were all just going to be lost. It all just felt like such a profound loss and such a waste in some ways. And so because of that, I found it really hard to get up every morning and finish off that school year. You know, I talk a lot about the importance of understanding where we're, what we're going through in our present by looking back at our past. And I think that's actually a really important exercise. The entire counseling industry revolves around this, right? How do the experiences of my past shape the person I've become in the present? But the way we live our lives in the present is also profoundly affected by how we view our future. I think this connection, though, truthfully, is a bit harder to understand. Um, because unlike the past, we actually don't know the details about the future, do we? We don't know how the future is going to unfold. And so, how does the future affect our present? Well, I want to say this. Our present and our future are primarily connected 
through our hopes, through our hopes. The choices that we make in the present, the motivations that drive us right now, all have an inseparable connection to the hopes that we hold for our future. Our hopes for the future make all the difference, in other words, in how we live our life in the present. That's why I was struggling so much in those final weeks teaching at Scott, was that I saw no future at Scott. All of that investment, all of that work that I put into being a member of that community felt like it was just going up in flames. Tim Keller writes, you and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. What we believe about the future completely determines how we live now. In other words, how we live our lives in the present is inseparable from how we will view, how we view our future. Richard Foster writes, women endure childbirth because the joy of motherhood lies on the other side. Young married couples struggle through the first difficult years of adjustment because they value the insurance of a, life, uh, of a long life together. Parents hold steady through the teen years knowing that their children will emerge at the other end human once again. As Foster points out, we willingly embrace all kinds of difficult choices and make great sacrifices in the present because of the hope of what we will gain by those choices for our future. Without hope, the human heart simply cannot survive. Well, if hope is so vital to how we live our lives in the present, then we need to ask ourselves, what are the deepest hopes that I hold in my life? What am I living for? What motivates me every morning when I get up? We have to be careful what we even mean when we ask this question because the biblical notion of hope is actually very different from the typical way we use it in modern English today. When we use the word hope in everyday conversation, we usually equate it with the word wish or desire. When we hope like this, we are hoping for something, we desire it to come true, and with that desire, almost always has an element of uncertainty included in it, in its essence. I hope I'll see you tomorrow. I hope it won't rain at the picnic. But the Bible actually, you know, when you look at Scripture, there are times where it actually uses it this way. Philippians 2, 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. 2 John 12, I have much to write to you, but I did not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. So when we see John or Paul writing these words, they're actually using it in the typical way we use it. I wish or I desire that this outcome would be true, but there's no guarantee. I don't know for sure that that's what's going to happen. These hopes are simply expressing the author's wishes in a future of uncertainty. 
But whenever the Bible refers to our deepest hopes as believers, it has actually the exact opposite emphasis. These hopes, these ultimate hopes, are not things that might come true, but are absolutely certain to come true, will take place. And that certainty is rooted in the reliability and faithfulness of God's character. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about the purpose of the stories recorded in the Bible in Romans 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Hope. Paul is making a remarkable claim here that the purpose of every single story found in the pages of the Bible have one singular goal, and that is to inspire hope for our own future. And then he illustrates his point a few verses later by pointing us back to the story of David and the promise that God made many years ago. In Romans 15, verse 12 to 13, it says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Let the story of how God fulfilled his promise to David inspire hope in your own heart. By referring to Jesus as the root of Jesse, Paul is pointing us back to the David story because Jesse was David's father. Paul is pointing to how Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of a promise made many years ago. God had made a promise to David. This is, we looked at all this in the last sermon I preached in the David series, right? Just in my previous message. God had made a promise to David that through his family, a king, a Messiah, an anointed one, would come one day who would establish a kingdom forever. But as I pointed out in that last sermon, the history of Israel that would unfold after David's death was a mess. Almost every descendant of David who had assumed the throne was just a horrible leader who would lead God's people away from God. And out of that would come one national disaster after another. In only two generations after David's death, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. And both of those kingdoms would eventually be conquered by outside nations. The temple would be burned to the ground, the walls of Jerusalem torn down, and the people of God deported into foreign lands. And from a purely human perspective, the situation looked utterly bleak and hopeless. And yet, despite all of those disasters, after almost a thousand years after David, God's promise to David was fulfilled when his son Jesus, born into the family line of David, came into our world to be that long-awaited promised king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is why the Christmas story is a story of hope. It's that despite a thousand-year history of horrible kings and national disasters, God's plan was not derailed. God demonstrated his ability to keep his promise and give us a king who would be a shepherd to lead his people back to himself. Just a little while ago, I pointed out how our everyday usage of this word hope is so much weaker than the biblical notion of hope. I think the same could be said of this word promise. The promises that we make to one another are so much weaker than God's promises to us. Uh, In fact, I think the truth is this. If someone ever makes you a promise or swears an oath to you, I think there's almost a natural suspicion that sort of creeps in, isn't there, when someone does that? Why? Because the truth is, the way promises operate in our world often feels more like manipulation than security. And in fact, that's why Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount about making promises, especially when we invoke the name of God to give extra weight to those promises that we make to one another. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus' words are very clear. Be careful when you make promises to one another. Dallas Willard, commenting on these verses, writes, Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. It is a method for getting their way. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing upon, to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly up to them. In other words, the dynamic of a promise is this. You tell somebody you're going to do something and they seem a little skeptical. So then you kind of up the ante and say, I promise. And maybe if you're really bold, you say, I promise in the name of God, I will do this. And Jesus' warning is that often comes not from the right place in a person's heart. But what the Bible says is this. God's promises are not like our promises, because God always keeps his promises to us. God alone is the perfect promise keeper. 
That's why God's promises alone are worthy of our total trust and deepest hopes in life. What is the foundation of the hopes you have built your life on? And what the Bible would say is God's promises alone can bear the weight of that hope. Lewis Smedes writes about the promises of God in human history. Human destiny is resting wholly on a promise. One thing assures us that the cosmos will not climax its arduous odyssey, turning itself into a sinking garbage heap. Only one thing affirms that the human romance will have a happy ending and that the earth will be populated one day by a redeemed family living in justice and shalom. The one thread by which everything hangs is a promise spoken and not forgotten. The only way to overcome the unpredictability of your future is the power of promising. Smeeds is saying something really profound. He says, the entire hope of human history hinges on nothing more than a simple promise of God that he will, in fact, do what he said he will do for us. It's interesting that the Bible tells us that marriage is one of the ways that God helps us understand our relationship with him. And at the heart of marriage is a covenant, is a vow, a promise of commitment between two people for the rest of their lives. Smeeds goes on to describe that contract of marriage. And he says, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. And each of the five has been me. (laughs) Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that there's something just so crazy about the marriage vow because the truth is that person that you're marrying is going to go through so many seasons of change over the decades of your life together. And so it almost seems ridiculous. How can I make a promise for a lifelong love to you when I don't know the person that you're going to become as our marriage goes through different seasons? But that is precisely the beauty and the mystery and the power of marriage. It's saying, regardless of how you're going to change, regardless of what seasons of transformation you are going to go through, some may be very welcomed, others may not be so welcomed, I make an oath to you, till death do us part. I will be there at your side through all of those different changes you're going to experience, both your changes and my changes. Smeeds extends this promise of marriage into even our commitment to our children as he continues. Extend marriage to a family. What makes a family? A family is a community created by the promise of two people who care for persons they bring into the world until those persons are able to care for themselves. Parents are people of promise. They remember their promise even when the family is a hotbed of anger grief, and pain, as families tend sometimes to be. A family is created and kept together not because parenting is so much fun, but because two people dared to make and dared to keep their promise. 
What Smeeds is in essence saying is, is this. In a world filled with all kinds of dangers and insecurities, the promises that we make to one another provide basically a shelter of predictability and stability into somebody else's life. It's the sense that we don't know the future. But you could take comfort that in that future, I will be by your side. And I will be there to support you and help you. The problem is this. In our attempts to make those promises to one another, we do so imperfectly. But the message of the gospel is that God's promises never fail. They are always perfect. Maybe some of you have been hurt by broken promises that people have made to you in the past. And so the idea of a promise is not really a comforting one to you. In fact, to base the entirety of our hopes on a singular promise seems way too shaky a foundation on which to place your ultimate hopes. But what the Bible says is that God's promises never fail. And they are worthy of our total trust. We can put the full weight of our deepest hopes on them because God will keep true to his promises to us. God alone in all this universe can say to any of us, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I want to sort of bring it home by saying this as well. At the heart of the Christmas story is the message that God sent his son, born into our world, so that he could die for our sins. We cannot, in other words, separate what happened on that first Christmas night in Bethlehem with what would happen three decades later in Jerusalem on a Roman cross when Jesus would die for our sins. What I'm saying is this. All of God's promises given to us are only possible because of the peace that Jesus purchased for us with God by that death on a cross. This is the greatest hope of the Christmas message. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 1 to 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the ultimate hope that I have for a good future for myself is not because of anything that I have done or accomplished or performed, but by what Christ has done for me. You know, a week ago I had this dream, and I want to tell you a little bit about it. Um, every once in a while I get these really vivid dreams. And uh, it was about my family. And I dreamt that I was in my living room when my kids were this age, when they were really young. And um, everyone, my wife and all the kids, just thought that it was just regular time. But in the dream, I realized I had traveled back in time. And 
So I spent that entire day playing with my kids. And even in the dream, I was getting so emotional. Uh, I was weeping as I was playing and having fun. And this dream was so vivid that I was actually in the dream recalling these cute little phrases that they would say when they were that age. Um, and we, the, main, the, the most of the time we were building these ridiculously complex structures out of Legos. And it was so fun. And we made this huge mess of the living room. And Betty came in and she was screaming at all of us saying, clean up and everything. But I was blissfully ignoring her because this was like a gift from God to have a dream like this. And I was picking up my kids and throwing them around and just um, cuddling them because they're not very cuddly now. But, uh, um, you know, they were just saying so many funny things that just had me in stitches laughing. Um, and as a father now of much older kids, um, I was just in heaven uh, remembering and just nostalgia and, and just um, so thankful for this dream that I was having. And it just felt like it went on for hours, just an entire day playing with the kids. But here's the thing is uh, I woke up from that dream and I actually started crying. And the reason why I felt the overwhelming emotion of sadness coming out of that dream was um, when my kids were this age, we were in Africa. And it was an incredibly busy season of my life when I was spending insane hours at the hospital. And the reason why there was such a profound sadness that crept into my heart waking from that dream was that I knew there were so many opportunities to play with my kids like that when they were that age that I had totally wasted because I was just too busy getting my work done. And so even as I awoke from that dream, I realized it was very idealistic in many ways of thinking, if I could only go back in time and have those moments, I would know how precious they are. But as I thought about it, I go, really? Because the truth is, I probably would have done the exact same thing. And so it's kind of sad that, in a way, I felt like that was God's gift to me to remind me how cute my kids are and how much I love them. But it was also an overwhelming sense of regret and sorrow of having made some bad choices in my life, of wishing I was a more present father in my kid's life. And that it didn't have to be a dream that I was reliving, but the reality of which I could say I was a good father. I think that's the brutality of life, isn't it? Is that we can end up feeling so much regret and feeling like we've blown it in so many ways, that we've let others down, and others have let us down. And when we look at life through that lens, it starts to feel pretty depressing and pretty hopeless. But the greatness of the promise of the Christmas message is that my ultimate sense of a life well-lived is not going to depend on my performance but on God's grace in my life. That is the hope of the Christmas message.
Let's pray. I don't know how you feel about your life, but there's definitely times in my own life where I do feel actually like I've made some pretty bad choices and I've messed things up in some pretty bad ways. And sometimes the truth is you can even feel like you've made some fatal mistakes in your life. It's too late. Can't turn back time. And I want to say if you've ever felt that way in your life, the Christmas story is God's personal message to you that in him there is always hope, that we never end our life in total despair because that hope is rooted not in our performance, what we manage to do, but in what Christ has done for us. Living the life that we should have lived, Jesus, our hope of righteousness. And so as we launch into this Advent season, can I invite you to begin with this place of hope? What are the ultimate hopes that you hold for your life? What are the dashed hopes that you've experienced because of a broken world? And I pray that for all of us here in this room, we could turn our eyes to the cross, turn our eyes to a manger where a baby lay 2,000 years ago. And what God is saying is, you guys are too weak to keep your promises. But my promises will never fail. And on my promises, you could pull the full weight of all of your hopes in this life and the life to come on me. And so why don't we just spend a moment right now just praying to God and saying, God, um, help me to rest all the hopes, the ultimate hopes of my life, not in anything that I've accomplished or I've done, but on what Christ has done for me. And just pray that for a few minutes and then our worship team will lead us in a time of response through singing. Let's pray.